Hallelujah. Father, we relate to the words of the Apostle Peter, one of the forebears in our faith. In John 6, 66, we read of this exchange. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We join the confession of the apostle of old in proclaiming this day every saint, every believer, every transformed and resurrected soul in the hearing of this message that you, Jesus Christ, are the Holy One of God. The Spirit has visited us and thus we have believed. And so now as we open your scriptures, the word proclaimed throughout all the ages, the revelation of our Savior and our Creator and the one who has made a way for us to be reconciled with the Holy God, it is to Jesus Christ's holy word that we turn. Whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? This scripture contains the words of eternal life. Jesus, we confess that in your word we listen to you this day. That in these words that we behold this morning is the authoritative, unchanging, immutable, inarguable word of a righteous and holy God. So we submit and surrender our thoughts, our opinions, our presuppositions, our assumptions before the standard of truth. And we confess before the holiness revealed in the pages of this book that we are sinners and lost and worthy of hell. But in and through the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary, we now receive these words as life. Life revealing to us the way of salvation and life sustaining us on the pathway to our heavenly home. Granting to us a work of sanctification, changing us into the image of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Lord, as your word is preached, that you would open up our hearts to receive and that you would quicken the proclamation so as to represent what you have said and nothing more, that you might be glorified and your people strengthened for the task at hand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a glorious honor and privilege it is to gather in the name of Jesus and to open up the scriptures. I encourage you to do that with me today by turning to Psalm 119. Verses 57 through 64, this will be our eighth in a series, preaching through Psalm 119 once a month. And also it will be the Heth stanza. Each stanza, as you recall, is named for one letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza has eight verses. In the original language, each one of those verses begins with the corresponding Hebrew letter. This brings us to Heth. The aim of this morning's message is to equip us, the church, for the trials of cultural judgment. I submit to you the context of Psalm 119, the Heth's portion, the eighth stanza, 57 through 64, presents a trial, uh, something like you could summarize as captivity. In verse 61, the cords of the wicked ensnare me, the author writes. Nevertheless, he has found the word of God to be sufficient, even for the trial of captivity. So we have trials in our day as well. The judgment of God has visited our culture, at least to some degree, and we certainly deserve it. We see the judgment of God visiting cultures of old. In the Old Testament, it came in the form of captivity. And to some degree, 
God has brought a sort of captivity or a darkness upon our land. And of course, the call is for the church to preach all the more boldly and clearly the word of God and to call people to turn from the darkness that would otherwise encompass them and signal their doom to repent and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word of God that we preach to bring clarity, perspective, and the call of repentance in our day is the same word that was proclaimed even in ages past in Psalm 119. Hath, perhaps a title for this portion for us in our message today is the trial of captivity. The word of God is sufficient for this trial as well. Would you stand out of reverence for God's word? And this morning, listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing. This is Hath 57 through 64 of Psalm 119. Here is the word of God. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion, <coughs> excuse me, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The eighth stanza of the Bible's great acrostic psalm. Acrostic, of course, means an orientation of the verses beginning with alphabetic or a beginning with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in a particular order. In this case, the first eight verses begin with Aleph. The second eight begin with Beth and so on until the eighth letter hath all these verses, all eight begin in the original language with that Hebrew letter. So this psalm brings us to the assurance that the singer, so long as he has the word and covenant revelation of God <coughs> to cling to, he has sufficient means to navigate the trial of captivity. As you recall, a overarching theme for Psalm 119 that we've been working with is basically this, the sufficiency of God's word. And what I have submitted is that from section two all the way through this one and through the remainder of the psalm, each section contains a presenting trial. Thus, we have seen in section two, the word of God is sufficient for the trials that attend youth, coming of age, young people. In the third section, we've seen that the word of God is sufficient for the trial of sojourning, passing through territory and culture or an era of history that is not necessarily home. So a stranger far from home is in exile and his journey is one of sojourning. The word of God is sufficient for that as well. Well, this morning we see added to the list that the word of God is sufficient for the trial of captivity, a situation that God's people faced on more than one occasion and principles that we can relate to, I suggest. Verse 61 describes conditions that try the soul of believers as, quote, the cords of the wicked ensnaring him. Nevertheless, our author confesses, he does not forget the law of God. That is to say, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, though he has cause and reason for despair, he remains hopeful, confident. How? He does not forget the law of God. The word of God is sufficient for the cords of wicked that would the cords of the wicked that would sneak to ensnare him. In the context of captivity, or to a lesser degree, but principally similar, a cultural context, which I submit we live in, hostile to the Christian worldview, the convictions of one's soul 
are rigorously tested. Our conviction as Christ followers, as those who believe in the inerrant and infallible Word of God, that it never changes, and as true and relevant today as it was the day it was written, in the context of the culture in which we live, that confession will be tested. Tested in some cases severely. Yet we have strength to stand if we avail ourselves of the means that the Scriptures reveal. In our society, as in the days of the author, no doubt, it costs something. It costs something to be a follower of Jesus. We are required, as in the days of old, to take up our cross and follow Christ. To be willing to lay down whatever element of our life is threatened by our bold profession of faith in Jesus. The psalmist, in Psalm 119, sharing our faith, though in more shadowy form, remains resolved. He says, the Lord is my portion. That is a great theme for this section. Could be the title of this message as well in a more positive way. The Lord is my portion. He confesses, uh, he confesses this. That is to say, he has sufficient means of survival and thriving in his God. Now, today as then, idols compete in our fallen world for the title of our portion. There are many other sources of hope or help or whatever category that, uh, that advertise in the mediums of our day saying, I will be your portion. I will supply this or that. I will give you what you need, your daily bread, the assurance of security, your identity, uh, your community, and so forth. The question remains, where do we find sufficient provision for the challenges we face? Who is our portion? Do we listen to the lies of our culture, the idols of our day, which promise us self-assurance in a day of uncertainty? Or do we find that absolute grounded identity, purpose, holy assurance of salvation in Christ alone? The Lord is our portion, if we are truly a believer. In our day, I suggest the state, government, lays claim to authority and sufficiently or insufficiency. It is the state that many look to and the state which boldly proclaims that they are our portion. We are expected to turn to the government as of in our day for our safety and our daily bread, just to name two. And we are guaranteed with false promises, by the way, by political institutions that uh, the lawless, that is those who do not follow God's word, can provide these for us. But what are these in light of our text? We recognize these promises are nothing more but the snare of the wicked, rearing its ugly head and presenting itself in a new and, quote, improved form in our day. But nevertheless, if we stand upon the Word of God, our confession as believers today is the same as the author of Psalm 119. No, we will not turn to idols to supply our needs. The Lord is our portion. It is to His Word that we build our life. It is, after all, the only strong rock foundation in the storms that face us. This confession is most difficult to maintain in times of hardship. The author recognizes this, and this is why 21 times he emphasizes that the Word of God is sufficient for all kinds of trials. The convictions of Psalm 119 require faith in times like ours. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight despite our enemies. Once again, the psalmist exhorts us to reinforce our souls, to strengthen our faith by heeding the covenant revelation of God. Kids, it's been a while since we played the stop game. You guys up for it? So you remember the game. I'm gonna, when you're going to listen for a word, and when you hear it, tell me to stop. Yell stop, right? 
So what I'm looking for is words that mean the Bible or the Word of God. So when you hear a word that is a synonym, which means it means the same thing as the Bible, tell me to stop. You guys got it? All right. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Words? That's the first one. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Well, we'll take that promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Testimonies? I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Very good. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Very good. Rules. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Yes. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. That's good. So what you kids have identified is a number of synonyms in the highlighter challenge, as I've called it. We're highlighting the words that refer to the covenant revelation or the word of God. And in this section, we've identified words, promise, testimonies, commandments, law, rules, precepts, and statutes. So again, the psalmist exhorts us to reinforce our souls in times of hardship by heeding all of these things. The words, the promises, the ways, etc. The word of God. With that introduction, let me give you a heading which will divide to four subpoints to consider our text today. This is the heading, the law word. It's a combination word, the law or the word of God. We'll say law word of God compels the following. Or you could say it inspires. The law word of God compels mutual promises. And that's just a phrase that refers to the first two verses wherein God makes promises to the psalmist and the psalmist makes promises to the Lord. So a covenant relationship is pictured in that exchange. There are mutual promises that the Word of God compels. If we truly understand, love, and appreciate the teaching of the Word of God, we will make promises or vows, commitments to the Lord. And we will also realize that He promises us certain things, especially in the Gospel. Secondly, the law Word of God compels urgent priorities. Certain things must be done, and they must be done with urgency right away because they rise to that first things first list on those who are following the Lord and listening to the Spirit they must do. Number three, unwavering resolve. The law word of God can, compels, it inspires unwavering resolve. A consistency, a perseverance, a conviction that does not change with every whim or wind of trial. And finally, the law word of God compels covenant relationships. The word of God is the basis for enduring long-lasting relationships within the body of Christ. And this dovetails well to Gene's sermon from 1 Corinthians 13 about Christian love that we heard last week. I encourage you to follow up on if you didn't get the chance to hear. Our author can relate to the words of Paul when he emphasized the importance of Christian love as he closes this section, exclaiming that he is a companion for all who fear the Lord, with all who fear the Lord. First of all, though, the law word of God compels mutual promises. Notice in verses 57 and 58. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. That's the psalmist's promise to the Lord. Considering the gift, the precious gift of the word of God. You know, in olden times, the word of God would be laid up in the temple and be protected at all costs. Because books were expensive and it took years and painstaking detail 
and careful attention and discipline for a scribe to write word for word and letter for letter and jot and tittle to ultimate accurate, to precise accuracy as much as humanly possible. Why? Because the word of God was that important to the faithful all through the years. And thanks to their dedication, we hold these scriptures in our hand or we can punch a button on our phone and read, yes, the very words of God. The very word of God is recorded and preserved for us with the same precision and accuracy today, but it's easier to take it lightly. Why? Because there's a Bible on every nightstand. There's a phone and an app in every pocket. And if you don't have one or forgot yours, there's a stack in the back. But never let our hearts grow too familiar with the word of God as to not appreciate the treasure that it contains. When we love and appreciate the word of God, the words that are communicated to us, it will inspire something. It will inspire obedience. We obey that which we respect. We follow those whom we admire. We worship those whom we fear. So if we admire and we fear and we value the word of God, then we will obey the precepts, the statutes, and the commandments of the Lord. This is the relationship between the Word of God and our promises, our obedience. The Lord is my portion. He is my everything. He is sufficient for me. Therefore, I promise to keep your words, the psalmist says. But in verse 58, there's a promise going the other direction. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. The grace of God's promises fulfilled to us in the gospel, give us the ability to fulfill our promises to the Lord. Do not the scriptures say we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. God's promise to himself between the members of the Trinity and his secure, and his secure hope via prophecy for all the elect is that he, in, his, in the fullness of time, would send his son to die in our place. That was a promise. And that was fulfilled on Calvary in Jesus Christ. We recently celebrated his resurrection, which sealed the deal that the promises of God in Christ are ours, are realized, are a reality, and are true. The psalmist recognizes that the hope that the sacrifices symbolically represented of old, of a once-for-all sacrifice of a Messiah to come, was the basis that he is the basis of his faith and is the means whereby he could follow his Lord. There's a relationship of promises. Because God has kept his promise to us, he changes our heart, renews our desires, grants us his spirit, gives us a calling, and instructs us, and thereby we can fulfill our promises to him. The psalmist says, the Lord is my portion. I'd like to give you some context of this in the history that might dovetail with an occasion that the psalmist recognizes. Let's turn to Lamentations for a cross-reference. Jeremiah wrote this book. Chapter 1 gives us the history, the context. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Lamentations 1-3. Here's the situation. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. What you're hearing here is a trial of captivity. Judah has gone into exile, that is, they have been held hostage by an enemy force, an army, because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. 
This was a situation worth weeping and wailing over to the tune of all the chapters of Revelation and more. The prophet expresses his anguish to the Lord in no uncertain terms, and a kind of wailing, prophetic voicing of the anguish and the desperation, and yea, even the depths of depression, perhaps, that he and those who realized the weight of the circumstance would feel at the time. When Babylon invaded Judea and took captives from Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, in 587 BC, it was the end of an era and practically speaking signaled the end of hope for the people of God. The place of God's union with man, the mercy seat between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, that geographic situation wherein God promised that reunion between a holy God and a sinful man is possible when that symbolic sacrifice was offered. All this was threatened by the invasion and the exile of the people of God. And that glorious holy house, the literal house of God, in embers as the invading army burns the very means of assurance that the people had to connect with their Lord. This was the trial of captivity. All is lost, the soul would cry in a short-term understanding of the circumstances. All was not lost because the word of God remained. But what the people needed to be assured is that in the absence of the temple, God's word and promises yet remained. And his people would return. And a sacrifice would come. A Messiah would be born. And God would take residence with his people once again in each and every living heart that beat with the resurrection, eternal life, of salvation and regeneration in Jesus Christ. All was not lost, but this was a severe trial, the trial of captivity. In chapter 3, by the way, the book of Lamentations, as I'm told, is organized according to four acrostic psalms, just like Psalm 119. It echoes Psalm 119 in form. And then the last portion is a 22 stanza structure, which scholars assume corresponds with the Hebrew alphabet as well. So it echoes Psalm 119 in form, but also in theme. In Lamentations 3:22, we read this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Let's say you were kidnapped at the time of the Babylonian invasion. Let's say you were taken in chains by the Assyrians raiding the tribes of the north, led literally by your nose to a foreign land, separated from your people, separated from your liturgy, your traditions, from that scroll laid up in the temple, from the tabernacle furniture and the temple worship, and you were hauled away to be exiled in a foreign land, and you approach the city gates towering high into the sky, gilded with gold and precious metals and the symbols of imperial power, like this beast with wings that's carved in bas-relief on this gate, and it swings open with a creak that only thousands of pounds of metal hinges can make, and you walk through into this city. And as far as your eye can see is the boastful testimony of the one who now rules the known world at the time, 
and you were hauled into the courts of the king to be re-indoctrinated and groomed to be an administrator to the greatest empire on earth in the presence of an intimidating culture rife with gods on every corner, no whisper of Yahweh in a foreign language where everyone looks at you as proof that their gods are king because Yahweh was unable to protect you from the invading armies. What kind of loss and desperation and despair might you feel in those circumstances? That is what captivity feels like when the hammer of God's judgment comes in a devastating blow and hauls away the people of God to Babylon. All was not lost, as I said before. There yet remained the abiding and living word of God and the promises of the prophets. Would they be sufficient? Absolutely. Jeremiah was one of those prophets, and he proclaimed in Jeremiah 29, when you enter into that land, seek the welfare of the city, shine as a light to this people, and watch what God will do. Seventy short years, you'll return. The temple will be rebuilt. But in the meantime, the testimony of Yahweh will thrive even under the conditions of captivity. And that's exactly what happened. Proving what Psalm 119, the heft section, proclaimed, that the word and law of God is sufficient for the trial of captivity. So this is the portion in context, if you will, when all appears lost to the degree that you and I can only imagine, though we can relate to some degree, I'm sure, in principle, when all feels absolutely gone and devastated by our enemies, Nevertheless, the Lord is our portion, if we are His, and He is enough. And His promises are more sure than your experience in the moment. And in Christ, you will one day pass through the gates of a city that will never die, never be conquered, a city whose streets are paved with gold, towering into the heavens, where there is no more threat of enemy, either on the inside, your own sin, or on the outside, the enemies who are all cast into a lake of fire. This is the promise that we have. Whatever might feel like captivity or discouragement in between now and then, the Word of God is sufficient to remind us, if we look to Him, that He is our portion. The psalmist recognizes this, and he holds his soul accountable to this truth. He says, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. He makes an obedient commitment. A true test of confession of sufficiency is obedience. I said this before, I'll say it again, what people trust is a sufficient source, that's what they will look to. If they really believe that there's provision and hope, that's who they will follow. That's where they will find the promise of happiness. It will be all right. Someone might console you in your despair. And the reasons that they appeal to you, if it brings a smile to your face, it is a God. It's a source of hope, a source of encouragement, or a blessing which He grants and has given. It's testimony of His care for you. Be careful where you find your assurance. Is the Lord your portion? You could seek to be in that situation that Example I gave you, that illustration before, you could seek the welfare or you could seek your own welfare in the city and just go along to get along, refuse to be a light in Babylon, and you might advance to be rich and powerful. But what would you trade? You would trade the portion of the promises of Yahweh for the promises of the immediate and the material of boasting you know, pride and riches of Babylon. And we are faced with that same question today. The world promises us a portion, a hope, 
an inheritance, a joy, a salvation, a means, a source of happiness. But it is a pittance, but it can compete for our soul's affection and attention when we are going through a trial, whether it be sojourning, the trials of youth, or trials of mockery, scoffers, persecution, or captivity, and so forth. Remain grounded in the gospel. There's a model for intercession given in 58. The psalmist says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. You know, at the time, if temple worship was still going on, what would it look like to entreat the Lord with all your heart? Well, it would look like preparing a sacrifice, very expensive, and bringing it to the temple, maybe once a year, giving it to the priest and telling him, have to keep it short because there's a long line behind you and a lot of people pass in front of you. Please pray for me when you enter into that worship service, enter into the Holy of Holies. This is my family's needs and sins. And that lamb would be then in the, you know, the, the priest, it would be in the possession of the priest who would go in and slaughter it on your behalf. That is one example of what fervent prayer would look like at that time. And trusting that through that representative system that God would have favor on you. But when we look to these pictures fulfilled, saints, what does it look like for us to entreat the favor of the Lord with all our heart? It means celebrating that the true Lamb of God has come. And trusting that Christ, when he, that our name was written on his hands when he died. And our name was graven on his heart as we sung today when he was killed for our transgressions and sins. And that God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus Christ, and pardon me. And when our realization, our love and appreciation of the gospel strikes our soul with its truth once again, as we seek to remind ourselves when we gather in this place, suddenly the courage to face the trials of the day increases. And we find that God's promises, if they can save us from hell, they can save us from anything else that stands in our way or threatens our future. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. It's a model of gospel prayer, gospel-grounded intercession. So the law word of God compels these mutual promises. This assurance from the Lord of salvation through his means supplied. And then our commitment to the Lord that we will stand upon this and we will follow and obey. Second major point, the law and the word of God compels urgent priorities. 59 and 60, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. So when we ponder, when we consider, when we study, we commit to mind and intellectual understanding, the testimonies, commandments, ways, words, and promise of God, there is an urgent priority that arises. And this priority is described poetically as follows. I turn my feet to your testimonies. Thinking about the ways of the Lord inspires us to change our direction, to orient our path and so forth. Furthermore, 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. It's an urgency, a priority. First things first, as I consider the holiness of God revealed in his scripture, it compels me to act and to orient my soul accordingly. There's a centrality to our life. There's a focus, a direction, a discernment, and a purpose that arises from this realization. Urgent priorities, the word of God, the ways of God, the testimonies, the truth that God has revealed in his scriptures, it grants a tool for us for objective self-reflection. To honestly take stock of our souls, to see where we fall short, 
and then to ask the Lord to grant grace of repentance that we might grow, be changed into the image of Christ our Lord, even from glory to glory. Self-reflection is absolutely essential for us to have any uh, objective view of ourselves and to grow. Now, most people, uh, you, you know, you think of like the catch-22 of psychology. How do you change yourself? You are what you are or whatever. Is there a way to stand outside yourself and view yourself independently? Well, the world would tell you and your sin nature would also confirm that psychologically speaking, you're captive to yourself. There's no way to stand outside yourself, analyze yourself, and then change yourself. I mean, it's sort of an absurdity on the face of it. But it is possible, but only when an objective outside party grants you a different perspective of yourself. When the Lord intervenes and shows you by the scripture with the mirror of his law, the areas of your life which fall short of his glory, you have the ability to redirect your thoughts, your identity, your footsteps, your sense of personality, you know, uh, orientation, your desires, your decisions, your affections, everything that makes you you and that abstract and the objective sense and in the practical sense when we think on God's ways, that is, when we submit to a standard outside ourselves, we have the capacity by that means to turn our feet to His testimonies. This, according to Scripture, is the only way of objective self-reflection. When I think on my ways, then I have the opportunity to analyze, do a self-audit of where I stand in light of the holiness of God and to turn to Him. Do we need self-reflection? Well, I was reminded of this and thinking about Gene's sermon last week. You know, the occasion for individual self-reflection hits pretty strong when we hear a great sermon on Christian love. We consider, man, the attitude that I've had to my children lately has been impatient and irritable. I'm sure many of you parents were like me, and that kind of cut you to the heart when Gene explained to us that those things are not to be passed off and excused as simply a personality quirk. But irritableness is indeed a sin, and it grates against the calling of Christian love. And so that chapter, proclaimed as it was in our ears last week, provides an objective opportunity to analyze ourselves, to see where we fall short in Christian love. It's on an individual level. How about on a national level? Uh, this week was sort of tumultuous in the political landscape of America because it was leaked by way of a 98-page document that the Supreme Court of our land is poised to overturn a famous landmark decision that found a so-called right to abortion somewhere within the penumbras and ephemera and, uh, and a bunch of uh, basically crap interpretation of the Constitution that you can abort one's child. Well, it's come to a head in the legal proceedings that such is not the case in the opinion of at least five justices, it would appear. But what does this situation remind us of? reminds us that the Word of God has not changed, though the courts in our day are fickle and in many cases wholly unjust. That Roe v. Wade decision, you know, that granted the ability or the permission to a woman, you know, so to speak, or in so many words, as far as they thought, to terminate the life of a living, or of a living being inside of her, that little child, that created a holocaust and an atrocity and a genocidal sins uh, to the tune of 60 plus million and counting. And we've just learned to live with it as a nation. You know, one time I was thinking about abortion and this great atrocity, and I thought to myself, I really should cry because I haven't cried 
for all the souls in the blood guilt and the horrible atrocity that we've lived with. You know, last week, it was really encouraging, just to illustrate my point, it was really encouraging to hear a testimony of what Compassion International does. They go out with money raised by uh, Christians to support individual little ones in harm's way. And one testimony we heard last week was a girl who was born with no legs, partial arm, and then just one complete limb. And it was amazing to see her photo on the screen glowing with the beauty and love of Christ as far as I perceived. Her story was incredible. When she was born, her family sought to kill her. Why? Because in their pagan superstitious mind, she represented a threat to her, their crops and their welfare, their livelihood. In other words, this child, this unwanted little one, born with deformities, they took to be a sign that their crops and livelihood would be threatened. Now, if you told that story to, did a man on the street interview, I guarantee you in self, you know, righteous America to a man, to an individual, everyone would condemn that. It's so wrong to consider murdering someone with birth defects because you think your crops are threatened. But now, let's analyze. Let's take the objective truth of Scripture and do a little self-audit in America. If there's uh, defects in the womb that are perceived by an ultrasound, and you think, I don't have the means or money or economic uh, ability to raise this child, is it principally any different that you would take the life of that little one before they were born rather than after? The scriptures say it's murder either way. God has knit us together in our mother's womb. It is he who has formed us according to his eternal plan. Every life from the moment of conception is imbued with the value of the image of God according to his creative design and decree. This is what we read in our worship text this morning from Psalm 139. So we need to search our hearts and repent of this atrocity that has wrought such blood guilt on our land. But wherein can we have a true objective self-reflection of the values and the cultural norms and the laws of our day and the political institutions. It's in the same place, the Word of God. His statutes, His testimonies, His ways, commandments, law, rules, and precepts. They haven't changed. We need to. They haven't changed. We must repent. And when we do, whether on an individual level, working on our Christian lives, or on a national level, setting the course of our law and culture, to that which would glorify God. What is needed? To turn our feet to the testimonies of the Lord. What do feet represent? The direction, intentions, purpose, destination, goals that we set, ambitions we pursue. That's the orientation of our feet. It's sort of like lifting the eyes in Scripture, the direction of our attention and affections. Our feet tend to go to that which we lift our eyes to. And the Lord alone is our portion, the only path worth following. It's straight, it's narrow, there's no exceptions, there's no tributaries, detours. It is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. That is it. How do we know him? How do we know the direction to follow and serve and love and appreciate him? It's in his scriptures. Time and again, 256 sometimes, if you count all those highlighted words, the synonym for the objective standard whereby to judge ourselves or our nation is given. It is the statutes, rules, precepts, the word of God, and so forth. So these are urgent priorities. When, I th when we think on God's ways and how grossly we've transgressed them as an individual, as a people, 
It is incumbent upon us to cry out that the Lord would turn our feet to his testimonies with urgency, that we would hasten and not delay to keep his commandments. And like Nineveh, the steadfast love of the Lord might manifest itself in grace and mercy. We have no right to demand such a thing. We're totally at his grace. But if he should grant it, truly we would echo with the psalmist, the earth is full of your steadfast love. Setting the feet toward the, of sinners through the direction of your testimonies and allowing us to repent and to turn, having analyzed our ways without delay and hastening to keep your commandments. Saints, make this your conviction, but also make it your prayer for this nation. And stand boldly with the psalmist that this is where we find our assurance. This is where we stake our claim. This is where we draw the line. The Lord is our portion. And this nation must, must repent until the Lord is universally acknowledged as the portion of our land, the source authority and the object of our purposes as a nation, the standard of morality for our laws, and so on and so forth. Number three, unwavering resolve. The law word of God compels an unwavering resolve. As the meditations of the psalmist stir in his soul, with conviction and courage, he expresses it this way in verse 61, Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Unwavering resolve, cords of the wicked. In Jeremiah 29, I referenced that, Jeremiah, that that prophet had given specific instructions to the exiles who would be heading off to Babylon. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. What did the cords look like at this time in history? What did the, ensnare, the snare of the evil one, how did it manifest itself in the day in which Daniel and his friends lived? Remember, I've set the stage for you. Imagine yourself in these young men's shoes, led away in chains to a foreign land. Well, within the courts of the king, four young men were gathered from the Hebrews. They were seen as promising individuals to perhaps serve as administrators, and the king's court. These, of course, were Daniel's three friends. Their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 17 or 8 of chapter 1, we hear a resolve in Daniel's voice. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Kids, you remember the instructions. Eat this diet of rich meats and foods and so forth. But it was against the law of God. It was against his statutes and commandments ceremonially that were given to Daniel and his friends. So they were resolved. Even though they were taken away, they were in the chains and snare of captivity, for the test and trial, the intimidating surroundings of a foreign, dominant, conquering world power. Nevertheless, they stood. Where did they find sufficient means to do so? They did, they stood in the, on the word of God, recognizing that he, the Lord, and his food was their portion. Even the vegetables that everyone assumed would make, render them much weaker than their cohorts Nevertheless, proved opposite. Why? Because indeed the Lord was their portion. I will not defile, he says, I would, uh, he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief and the eunuchs. And then I trust you know the rest of the story. An unwavering resolve was granted to Daniel and his friends in the face of the intimidating wicked, whose cords were set to ensnare and coerce them and indoctrinate them in the religion 
and the cultural mores of this wicked power. But instead, something opposite happened. They ended up influencing this world power by simply taking a stand. The Lord is my portion, and on His law I make my commitment. In verse 31 of chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 16, excuse me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, and we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Recognizing that the Lord and His law was their portion, these three stepped into the fiery furnace. But as the scriptures record, they did not step in alone. The Lord was their portion in the fiery trial of captivity and revealed Himself as a fourth person, even recognized by the pagans, one like the Son of the gods, walking in the blaze with them, preserving them from the fire of destruction. 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It was indeed the Son of God. That's who was walking in the fire. Jesus Christ proving that God's word is sufficient for the trial of captivity and even the threat of death by martyrdom. There is a famous quote, I can't remember the missionary who originally authored it, but he simply said, I'm immortal until I have done everything God has called me to do. I am immortal until I have done everything God has called me to do. This was the conviction of these three friends in Daniel. Where do you get that kind of strength? Where do you get that kind of resolve? Psalm 119 answers, why do you think there's so many references to the Word of God? Why is it the longest chapter in the Bible? Why does it declare the sufficiency of the Scripture for 21 individual trials, if you want to categorize it that way? It's because that is the source that gives you the strength and the resolve and the conviction to simply say and to follow and to orient your footsteps with the conviction that I am immortal until I have done everything God has called me to do. I need not fear man. I need to fear the Lord. The Son of God not only has walked with His children in the fire, but He has walked with you and me through the grave. There is a fourth one, so to speak, who appeared, uh, who walked through the grave alive. He rose again. So need we fear death? Those of us who were once captive all our lives, according to Hebrews, to the fear of death, are delivered from that enemy and snare, the devil, because we serve a resurrected Savior. Remind yourself that Jesus rose from the dead every Sunday, and you will be encouraged that if death can't keep you down, then the wickedness of our hour is nothing to fear, ultimately speaking, if we but fear the Lord. Final point today. Oh, I just have to mention this quickly. I love this verse 62. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. And I couldn't help but think, so we know in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in captivity. They've been arrested and put in jail. But they praise the Lord, demonstrating their resolve. They're singing hymns to the Lord. I can't help but uh, speculate. I wonder if one of the hymns was Psalm 119. I wonder if they might have sang this very verse. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. That thought struck me as I read these verses. Because that source of meditation would be sufficient to give them faith, to worship the Lord with joy, 
even though their wrists and ankles were clasped in those, you know, irons by, and by the Roman guards and so forth. You guys know the rest of the story. They were immortal until God had called them to do everything he called them to, until they did everything God had called them to do. And in fact, they were impervious to jail because God had more missionary work for them. And in the night, the earthquake came, their bonds were loosened, and not only were they set free, but the jailer himself was set free from his sin when he heard from Paul and Silas, who praised the Lord at midnight, recognizing he was their portion, recognizing that his word was sufficient for the trial of captivity. Men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? You must have answers that I have never even considered. Sure enough, they led him to Jesus Christ. And he could leave that place knowing that whatever trial faced him in the future, that he also now had sufficient grace to stand. Final point, covenant relationships. The law and word of God compels mutual promises, urgent priorities, unwavering resolve, and finally, covenant relationships. 63, verse, or Psalm 119. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. So I am a companion of all who fear you. So we live in a time, a day and age that's obsessed with identity, tribal identity, communities, minority communities, majority communities, oppressed communities, oppressor communities, and the list of communities, however arbitrary it might be, and whatever one is advocating, they all hire their, you know, um, lobbyists to represent their special interests, and then they appeal to the highest conceivable authority in the mind of pagan man to get some special favors and entitlements from the government, and then it hardens the tribal lines, and then there's more and more division that rises up between one and another. And the sociologists say, oh, it's only natural, you know, citing evolution, it's, you know, people have their in-group preferences, and so on and so forth. And this kind of confusing mass of strife that colors our pagan fallen world today can tie you in knots if you're not careful. Then the scriptures step in to make it eminently clear. There is such a thing as an in-group preference that you and I share, but it has nothing to do with all the other things that divide or unite people. It's not a common shared experience in your ethnic background. It's not this you know, privileged position that you were able to enjoy. It's not the assurance of you know, a comfortable future based on the inheritance of your, of your parents. And it, it's not you know, finding a community that shares some hobby that you like and really you know, spending a lot of time at the expense of your family's attention with those dudes or whatever. None of that. What is it that binds us? I am a companion of all who fear you. We are a people who find our most reassuring, long-lasting, meaningful, binding relationships with others who fear the Lord, who recognize His word is superior. He has spoken. He has sent His Son. And He has saved a wretch like me. If you were a wretch and were saved, if I was a wretch and was saved, when we get together and remember that, we celebrate a work of miraculous salvation against a hell that both you and I deserve. It resets the terms of relationship and renders everything else a moot point. This is why Paul said the middle wall of separation between Jew and Greek had fallen in the gospel. That was a powerful wall. This is why the scriptures proclaim that one day a people, representative people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather in perfect unity at the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating the unity that they have in Christ and also the glorious diversity that he has ordained in his created order and the unique signature that is redeemable that he's placed on people, groups, and individuals, and personalities. It's the one and the many redeemed in Christ. 
It's the hope for unity in a world torn apart by all the strife and tribalism and division. We have the answer, saints. The Lord is our portion. He is our identity. Our identity is in Christ, not in who we were or who we hope to be in and of the means and the gods of this world. No, we have been redeemed, once slaves to sin, now slaves to Jesus Christ. And what a joy to serve him together, arm in arm with you, as we move forward in some ministry project or as we pray before morning service starts, 9.30 here on a Sunday. Just a glorious bond that we share. Something that the world tries to replicate but can never approximate. Something that can only be found in the bonding agent, the blood of Jesus Christ. Truly, when we recognize all these things, we will exclaim with the psalmist, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. The ungodly tries to set a snare. They try to dispirit the church. They try to destroy her. But the scriptures have spoken. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. doesn't matter if you haul everybody captive. The word of God accompanies them in their hearts. They confess it and believe it, however small the remnant. And then God, pleased to display his glory, raises up an unlikely people to continue the work of his kingdom growth. Yes, even in our day. And those people recognize that when you look at the sky shining with the undeserving sun or the seasons breaking forth in the new life of spring, which reminds us of resurrection, or food on the table tonight, even though we don't deserve it, this world as wicked as it is still gives forth a yield sufficient to feed billions. We realize in these undeserving kindnesses of our Lord, truly the earth, your earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. If you meet someone that's so impressive, you know, someone that just completely blows you away, you're excited to get to know them. When we have come in Jesus Christ face-to-face and in personal relationship with the creator of this universe, it's only natural that we would exclaim, teach me your statutes. You guys know the information that's easiest to retain. It's that which you love and are excited about. If you get a new idea, you're searching for a tool or an implement, you know, on the job, you know, you scour the internet and pretty soon you're an expert. Maybe you're shopping for a new uh, weapon to defend your family. I've fallen into this camp before. Pretty soon I knew everything there was to know about, you know, a 380 caliber semi-automatic handguns. Why? Because I loved, I loved what I was pursuing. And that really is the key to understand and retain. It's a matter of love. When the Lord has opened up our eyes to the beauty of his salvation, it's only natural that we would be humble and teachable and add to the reservoirs of our current understanding more about the glories of this gospel that he has revealed. Thus, in our text today, just to summarize, the law word of God compels mutual promises, urgent priorities, unwavering resolve, and covenant relationships with each other and with him. What a glorious uh, reality we have in the gospel. Let us close in prayer and pray that God would seal his word upon our hearts and give us boldness to proclaim it. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we've had to consider ourselves in light of your scriptures. And as we see that objective standard of truth and ourselves falling short, we feel cut to the heart, Lord, in ways that we have grown weary in well-doing, lost the joy of our salvation, or entertained aspects and self-justified our sin nature. We repent, Lord. We pray that you would return us with a zeal and a passion to pursue the righteousness and holiness of Christ our Lord, because we confess you are our portion. As we grow in faith and understanding and boldness, with that resolve that your word can give, that your spirit seals upon our souls, would you give us a bold proclamation to hold out this hope for others? 
Help us to be a consistent testimony to our children as parents in this room. Help us to reach out with the love of Christ and the message of hope to our family, our extended families, perhaps coworkers or other uh, relationships at work and otherwise, so that we might continue to shine. If there is a time in our lives or in our society where that captivity and the ensnaring of the wicked one is a reality, remind us that your word is sufficient for such a trial and give us strength to hang on to you and to, and to acknowledge you as our portion and to proclaim that even to the lost. Finally, we pray for our nation, Lord, that the word of God would come forth with clarity, that you would raise up voices that would call for repentance, that hearts would be convicted and turn from sin, and with the sackcloth and ashes of a heart change, cry out for salvation, the only place where it can be found, Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.